FOMO, the fear of missing out. We live in a time where we have more options than we've ever had before, professionally, personally, socially, and we're aware of those options because technology allows us to see what's going on in the world around us, shedding light on all the things we're missing out on. This fear of missing out is the awareness of all the options we have and the understanding that no matter what we do, we'll never be able to enjoy all of them. That new thing, that event, that party, that trip. But what if we're so worried about missing the things of this life that we're missing out on the life God has for us? A life more abundant. He gives us the time, treasure, and talents and calls us to join him. It's up to us to decide if we'll stand up and step out to be part of his story or if we'll continue to live frozen by fear of missing out. Hey, I'd like to welcome all of you who are watching on, uh, online right now with the live stream. So good to have you with us, uh, whether you're homesick because of flu season or if you're out of town traveling or if you live out of town, it is so good to have you uh, with us today. Those of you as well in Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton uh, down in sunny Florida, glad that you join in with us uh, every single week. Those in Skagit, uh, good to have you. And it's exciting what's happening there as, as you guys are just filling that room and uh, pretty crazy. I understand the last few weeks just packed in there. Good to have you with us. And and uh, even you guys here, it's okay to have you here too. It's good to, good to see you here. You know, in the, uh, in the 16th century, there was a, a German legend that became a story. And actually, this storyline is one that became frequently repeated throughout history in poems, puppet shows, songs, etc. The story was about uh, a man named uh, Faust. And Faust, while incredibly successful in life, was really disappointed in life. And so he entered into a pact with the devil, and he decided to trade his soul, and in return that he would receive worldly knowledge and uh, worldly pleasures. And that storyline has made its way through this selling my soul to the devil throughout the years. Uh, a couple hundred years later, um, uh, Oscar Wilde, uh, his story about the picture of, uh, of Dorian Gray, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, Dorian, this beautiful individual, so afraid that, that the handsomeness and the youthfulness would fade, made a, a deal with the devil, traded his soul that he would forever stay young and handsome and beautiful, and the picture of him would begin to age. And while he was being created new every day after day, being made new in his external life, his internal life was being deteriorated and, and rotten every single day. Some of us are familiar that the devil went down to Georgia and he was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was out of time, so he was willing to make a deal. This storyline has just kind of made its way throughout human history. But it's not just the dramatic, I'm selling my soul to the devil. A few years ago, it was reported that an 18-year-old named Sterling Jones, probably a little short on cash, put on eBay an auction for his soul to see what he could fetch for his soul, and uh, officials at eBay were made aware of this. They took it off and, and informed him that eBay was not um, allowed to auction off human souls. Uh, however, a few years later, Wired Magazine reported that someone actually did. It was a 29-year-old um, university communications instructor. He put his soul up for auction, and after 10 days of bidding, a realtor from New York City paid him $1,325 for his soul sold his soul. And this individual who sold his soul is quoted saying this, in America, 
You can metaphorically and literally sell your soul and be rewarded for it. That's what makes this country great. <laughs> and while there's a little bit of humor, uh, a great deal of, of sadness in that statement, I don't think that's what makes America great, but especially in our American culture, so often we do sell our soul, maybe not on eBay, maybe not for $1,325, maybe not to the devil, but it's so easy to miss out on what we were truly created, the life we were truly created to live. A couple of hundred years ago, um, Charles Wesley wrote a hymn, great hymn of the church. Um, we haven't sung this hymn in this church for a couple hundred years. But anyway, it was a great hymn of the church. And the, the title of it was, Jesus, lover of my soul. That Jesus loves my soul. He's not trying to trade it off or to steal it or make a bargain or a deal for it. I mean, he would give his life for it. And this one who loves our soul more than anything else asks this rhetorical question that we've come back to every week in this series in Matthew 16 when he asks, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul, or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Basically, you know, do this cost-benefit analysis. What do you think is worth that kind of exchange? What do you think the value of your soul, the true essence of who you are in your life is worth? And what are you willing to trade for that? And this whole series about the fear of missing out, the, the essence of the series, kind of the bottom line of the series, is that so many times we're afraid of missing out on something in this life some experience, some knowledge, some relationship, some acquisition, some, uh, some amount of money, whatever it might be, that we will go after that and miss out what is truly important. And so the, the whole theme that we've been looking at again and again is don't pursue the trivial and miss the important. Don't go after those things that are temporary and miss those things that are, that are eternal. Don't go after those things that are kind of like a minuscule importance of, of, of not lasting value and miss out on the relationship with your family, uh, the development of your soul, the importance of, of making a difference in this world. Several years ago, um, I was at the Gorge uh, Amphitheater and, uh, for a concert, and uh, the, one of the individuals who was playing that night is a man of incredible talent incredible talent. But as he began to share, and what I also read from tabloids and such, as he began to share that night between songs, it became very clear that this man was filled with angst, emotional confusion, and had a lot of a chain of, of relational difficulty. And yet, as a musician, a musician he, was, he was phenomenal. Still is. One of his early songs, his name, by the way, is, is John Mayer. One of his early songs called Why Georgia, which was, was just a huge smash in... Uh, what was it, the early 2000s, I think it is profound in its lyrics. It goes into the bridge before the course, and it says, and I wonder sometimes about the outcome of a still verdictless life. Like, I wonder when the verdict is finally, you know, brought down about this life. It's, the, the jury is still out. It's still hanging. But I wonder what the outcome will be about this still yet verdictless life. And then he would ask this question, am I living it Right. And I think that's a profound question. It's a profound statement because for every single one of us, the verdict on our life is still out. When we get to the end, when it's all said and done, when we look back with regret, when we look back and say we've settled, how is it? Am I living it right? And that is this question. The things that I fear I'm missing out on, are those the things that I'll look back and say, man, I'm glad I went after that? Or will I look back and say, man, I sacrificed my health, my peace, my family, my soul? For those things. Think about one of the keynote uh, figures, not only of the Old Testament, but all of Scripture, is David. 
David's this guy who's like living the dream, right? He's the king of Israel during its glory days. It, you know, Israel never returned to that kind of status. He was the king, and as the king, he had influence, he had power, he had wealth, he had fame, he had popularity. Uh, it was an amazing thing, great success. Not only that, uh, as a king in his position and role in life, but he was unbelievably talented as an artist. I mean, he was a dancer. The Bible doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it, but he was a dancer of un- unbelievable proportions. He is the first one that has a recorded wardrobe malfunction during the middle of a dance. And it, it makes Janet Jackson's thing a few years ago look pretty, pretty mild compared to what ha- he's dancing. In, anyway, so you can read that on your own. Not only was he a dancer, but he was an unbelievable musician. When he would play music, there was something almost supernatural that happened, almost this calming spirit that would come with his music, and not just as an instrumentalist, but as a lyricist. The songs that he wrote are absolutely amazing. On the, on the greatest hits albums, you know, some of these favorites. I don't know if you're aware of this, but on the uh, Billboard's Top 100, when a song goes to number one, you know, it may stay there for a week or two or three. The uh, longest that any song has stayed at number one in Billboard's Top 100 is 16 weeks. 16 weeks. It was Mariah Carey and Boyz II Men, uh, and everyone has that still on their playlist, of course. But anyway, 16 weeks. David wrote songs that 3,000 years later, people are still making remakes of it. They're still singing these songs. They're still quoting these lyrics. They're having his lyrics tattooed on their arms and other body parts. The, the song, I mean, like his greatest hit, Psalm 23 is still repeated daily by some in churches every week at funeral services. It's an amazing thing that he would have this kind of talent. And on top of the talent, he was like this military strategist, this leader with these incredible conquests. And it's like everything he did just just went well. And he was really good with a slingshot. I mean, all of these things. He's like the Renaissance man. He's the most interesting man in the world. And with this life, living the dream, I'm like, who could script anything even better? In one of these poems that he writes, he says this, Psalm 16. He said, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. To which you say, well, David, what are you talking about? You're you're the king of Israel. You're the artist. You're the dancer. You're the musician. You're the military leader. What, What do you mean you have no good thing? He says, those are all fine. But in comparison to the Lord Those all pale in comparison. You take a look at my life, and it looks like all this outward, external, worldly success, and I have that. But it's nothing compared to the Lord. And at the end of that psalm, in verse 11, he would say, you have made known to me the the path of life. You want to know how to live it right? You go to the Lord. He has made known to me how to live it right. Not only that, you fill me with joy in your presence. All the joy of being the king, all the joy of the greatest hits, all the joy of dancing, all the joy of of winning and victories in in the military, nothing compared to the presence of God and having that joy in my life. And not only that, but with eternal pleasures at your right hand. It's not just in these days, I have this for all of eternity. You talk about someone who's living it right. He says, it's about the Lord having that priority there. It's about the joy of the presence of the Lord in my life right now and the hope for eternity and future. And this now and later is something he would come back to again and again. Again in Psalm 23, he says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, like here and now, 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's not just here, and it's not just there. It's both and. He says, the Lord teaches me how to live it right. That's an amazing thing. In Philip Yancey's book, um, What Good is God? He, uh, he recounts an event that happened in history in 2004 in, in the Ukraine. Um, the Soviet Union has you know, kind of collapsed, and Ukraine was moving towards a democracy. And there was an upcoming election, and there was a man named uh, Viktor Yeschenko, and he was like the unofficial leader of the opposition coalition. And he decided to run for president of Ukraine against the, you know, the, 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 the government that had been uh, entrenched for, for many, many years. And in this campaign leading up to the election, he was poisoned and almost died, left him dif disfigured. And, and in fact, all of his advisors said, pull out of the campaign. It's not worth your life. He stayed in there. On the day of the election in Ukraine, on the day of election, the exit polls showed that he le led by a strong 10%. But that night, the state-owned uh, and state-run television programs, news programs, declared that he had been decisively defeated. There was a great deal of corruption in this. Well, all indicators were that he won. It was reported by the state he had lost. So this was going out to the whole, not only their whole nation, but beyond that. The interesting thing was that there was a brave young woman named Natalia Dimitrik. Natalia Dimitrik had been raised by parents who were both deaf and mute, and as an adult, she had got hired by the television station to be in the, on the television, that little bubble in the corner, doing the sign language interpretation for all those who were hearing impaired. And that night, as the news was, was declaring the defeat of Yushchenko, uh, Natalia Dimitrik signed these words. I am addressing all the deaf citizens of Ukraine. Don't believe what they say. They are lying, and I am ashamed to translate these lies. Yashchenko is our president. And no one knew what she was doing. And it started this revolution. It's called the Orange Revolution. That the deaf people who understood this, and those who were hard of hearing, those who could understand sign language, they began texting their friends, and it began to spread to their hearing friends, and other journalists began to hear about this brave young lady, and they began to speak the truth, and a million people marched in Kiev saying, we need a re-election, the corruption has got to go. Now, the reason Yancey tells us in the book, and the reason I, I restate it to you this morning, is because we live in a world that has a big screen filled with these lies that say, this is what you don't want to miss out on. This is what life is all about. Our culture is this big screen that screams at us every single day. Our friends and their lifestyles scream at us every single day. The media screams at us every single day. Some of our families, our own wishes, desires, and wants scream at us. And in the corner, there's one voice that says, don't believe the big screen. It's a lie. And I'm telling you, everything they say is not true. That's not the life. You're afraid you're going to miss out on that? If you pursue that and miss out on what's really important, you've truly missed out. And in this screen, in that little bubble in the corner is Jesus, and he comes with this message, I'm going to tell you about life, the life you don't want to miss out, the life that is full, the life that is eternal, the life that you were created, designed, and appointed to live. And in this series, we've seen how Jesus would confront individuals and say, no, 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 not that life, this life. Don't believe the big screen. Listen to this life. And he said, this is the life you want. 
In the first week, we saw that he had that encounter with the rich young ruler. And what Jesus said to him is, listen, the life you want is a surrendered life. You remember that phrase? It was like this, this key phrase where Jesus said, one thing you lack. And this guy had it all. He was successful in the world. Not only that, but he was actually very spiritually inclined. But he was in control. And he didn't want to let go of control. And Jesus said, you lack one thing. And the life that will really satisfy is a surrendered life. In the second week, we looked at how the disciples of Jesus were doing incredible things, good things, kingdom things. But Jesus knew that they could get intoxicated by the success of their ministry, and it would come at the price of their very own souls. And he says, the life you want is not just one of fruitfulness in the kingdom, but that's good. But the life you need to make sure you have is a connected life, you know, connected with the Father, to restore your soul. And he would make that phrase to them, come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. And then last week, we saw how he encountered Simon. And Simon was confronted with this issue. Do I go with what makes sense? Do I go with what, what it seems logical? And, and Jesus was asking him to do something that was completely against everything that, that seemed to be this way. And Jesus was saying, don't listen to that life, follow me. And Jesus would say to him, listen, the life you want is an obedient life. And when, when Simon said those words, but because you say so, I will, it changed his life. And his obedience preceded the, the, uh, the blessing of God. And because he was obedient, his life was never the same. In fact, our world was never the same. And Jesus says to us, listen, the big screen of this world, of our culture, of our family and friends, of our own thinking, is going to say, don't miss out on this. But I'm telling you, do not miss out on this. Don't miss out on a surrendered life a connected life, an obedient life. And today as we conclude this series, we're going to talk about a prioritized life. There's no blank, but go ahead and fill that in if you want. Kind of make it up. Some of you are like, relax. You can go ahead and put it in the margin. It's going to be all good. A prioritized life. This is important. Solomon, one of the wisest men who ever lived, in the book of Proverbs, gives us these words, above all else. Like put this one on the top of the stack. Put this one to the front of the line. Don't let this one get lost in the shuffle here. Above all else, guard your heart, this, this, this place of your affection, of your devotion, of your commitment, of your attention, of your passion. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It's the source. And you need to make sure that that's in, the, in a good place, that that's in a good condition, because from that is going to be everything else. And Jesus would take this whole theme and he would address it again and again. Blessed are the pure in heart, he would say, for they will see God. He'd say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. From a bad heart comes bad things. From a good heart comes good things. They've hardened their heart against me. Their hearts are far from me. This heart issue was very important to Jesus as well. And in the greatest commandment, he said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Quoting out of Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, which Jewish people would say every morning and every night. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Solomon says, guard your heart. Jesus said, keep a pure heart and love the Lord with all your heart. And this heart thing is very important for us. And Jesus knew that there would be some, some temptations to veer off track, some things that could distract us from having the kind of heart that would lead to the kind of life that we were created to live. And so he would very often identify our heart's top rival, 
What are those things? What is that thing that we have to be very aware of that will, that will lead us off, that will tempt us away, that will just kind of steer us in the wrong direction, and further down the road we'll realize how far off we've drifted. And so as he talks about this, there's a time in the Sermon on the Mount where he actually prescribes and, and gives a, like a, a spiritual echocardiogram to, to kind of take a look at what is the condition of my heart, where, where is it, you know, that, how, how healthy is it, how, you know, what is, what is the direction of my heart. And he, and he gives a spiritual echocardiogram in, a, in a, the context uh, of a greater teaching. You can read it on your own in the Sermon on the Mount. But in Matthew 6, 21, he says this, For where your treasure is there your heart will be also. He said, these things are connected. They are linked together. You can't separate these things. Where your treasure is, the things that your, your money, your possessions, your, your accomplishments, your success, the, your accounts, your, your investments, all your properties, all that, that that's, that's so often where your heart is. That, there's a passion, there's a attention that is given to that and a devotion to that. And this is where the fear of missing out comes into play with this whole thing. Because it's that treasure that so often we long for more than anything else. We give our lives to. We spend our entire life going after getting more of this, saving up more of this, experiencing this, buying all these things. And sometimes it's at the expense of our heart. Sometimes we'll go after these treasures. We don't want to miss out on this life, the big screen life of America, and what we lose is our integrity, our morals, our ethics, our values, our character. And not only that, sometimes we'll sacrifice our families, our health, our peace of mind. And we go after that which is temporary and trivial and miss out on that which is really important. Or, especially in America, these treasures, whatever this big screen life that we're pursuing is, causes us to arrange our life and our financial world in such a way that we will later regret it. We're just told over and over again, just consume everything. Live to the end of your means and beyond. Go in debt, buy it on credit, get it on time, lease it. And we can dig ourselves into a financial pit that is so big while we have all these things that we just couldn't live without, now our life is filled with with burdens and stress and anxiety and conflict. One of the top problems and top uh, reasons for divorce and conflict in marriage is financial stuff. And it's usually because we pursued all the stuff we had to have. And now the pressure and the stress, and some of us know what it's like to live under that pressure and stress. Here's the truth. Our world will continue to scream at us. Don't miss out on this. Buy this. Did you know that this afternoon... Companies are paying between five and six million dollars for a 30-second window to tell you don't miss out on life. In the Super Bowl, a 30-second commercial is somewhere between five and six million dollars. And if you happen to watch that useless game today, <laughs> what you will hear every time these commercials come on for 30 seconds is, don't miss out. If you don't drive our car, you're missing out. If you don't eat our chips, you're missing out. If you don't drink our beer, you're missing out. If you don't buy our insurance, you're missing out. They will pay five to six million dollars to convince you that you're missing out. And there's this fear of missing out that says, okay, I better go do that. And we buy it. You know what, I, I thought about this. 
I think it would be wise for us to start selling 30-second commercials in my sermons. <laughs> Five, six million bucks, you can have one. Just imagine the, the work we could do in missions around the world, allevi- alleviating poverty. This is amazing. So I was thinking about maybe s- selling commercials. And, uh, and I thought, well, let, let's give it a dry run. Um, I'm not going to pay for it, but I'm going to give a little commercial. So we, we stop our regularly programmed uh, you know, deal here for, for a commercial break. So this whole concept, this is a commercial. This whole concept of, you know, I got to miss out and I got to get all this and we live, the way we live puts us into a financial mess. Here's the commercial. I'm so excited that we get to start Financial Peace University here in the next couple of weeks. And I, I'm telling you, this is an amazing thing. Last year we offered this and 120 of us took that. And, and singles and young couples and dating couples and young families and empty nesters and senior citizens is amazing. And to hear the reports back from this nine-week course of this biblical, practical way to, to arrange your financial world, a young couple that's young in their marriage said, I wish all of our couple friends could take this. This has changed our life. A young family with, with a little kids said, we're doing our whole financial world differently than we've ever done. A family who has kids that are a bit older. After the class, I got a text from, from the, the husband, and he said, for the first time, because we followed these baby steps, for the first time in the almost 20 years of our marriage, except for our mortgage, we're completely debt-free, and it is so wonderful. Anyway, I just want to say this is an amazing thing. And we're offering this. All the information, there's a little, uh, little card in your, in your link to, to tell you about that. You can sign up for that. And for some of you who have taken this and you said, man, that was so helpful for me, I would like to help and encourage others. If you want to be a small group leader and you're interested in helping that or co-lead or what have you, you can contact my assistant, Suzanne Skurjank at SuzanneS.com, um, at CornwallChurch.com. That would be great, and we'll get back to you. All right, that's your commercial. Didn't cost you 5 or $6 million at all. But back to our regularly scheduled program. So Jesus, again today, takes on this whole concept of the fear of missing out, and he confronts an individual that he doesn't want to miss out on what is really important. Now, this individual that we're going to look at remains nameless, not because we're trying to protect his innocence, but because the New Testament doesn't give us his name. And it starts off with a quick encounter with Jesus and him that shortly after goes into a a widespread teaching to thousands of people. It's found in Luke chapter 12, and for some of you may be raised in the church, it's a fairly familiar story. If you want to follow along, you can as you're turning there. In Luke chapter 12, leading up to this, it's in the height of Jesus' popularity. People are coming out to hear him speak because when he would teach, he taught not only with authority, but it was almost like he loved them and like God was on their side and like it, it, there was hope for them. And he taught these things and he would explain it in ways they could understand. It's like, oh, I can do that or I get that or yeah, that makes sense. And boy, this seems like good news. And so there's thousands of people. In fact, Scripture says that people were trampling each other to get there. And so they're trampling each other to hear him speak. Thousands of people. And Luke chapter 12, and the first part of that chapter, Jesus gives some very, very strong and deep teaching. In the middle of it, maybe he comes up for, uh, for air, takes a little breath, and this happens in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, this is kind of out of the blue. We're not even talking about inheritance. I wonder, okay, I wonder if Jesus thinks, hmm, two brothers, a dad, an inheritance. This could make for a really good parable. I better chew on this one. I'll bring that back up in three chapters. All right, I'll call it the prodigal son. But that's in Luke 15. We're not there yet. Okay, anyway, it's just a thought. I wonder if they, so, so this guy says, hey, Tell my brother, I won't go into all the cultural details with inheritance, why this was such a bad idea, 
But, but Jesus looks at him, and you know, you can understand there's all these people around, they're looking, and maybe the brother's right there, and he's feeling the pressure. And Jesus basically says, you can read it on your own, verse 14, Jesus basically says, you know, what am I, a probate judge? It's really what he says. And then he realizes he has the opportunity to help this young man get his eyes off of the big screen and to hear that that's a lie and you're going to miss out on life. Not only does he have that opportunity, but there are thousands of people so he can address the whole crowd and not just talk to this guy, but all of them. So he turns to the crowd now, thousands of people, and in verse 15 he says, watch out, watch out. Now I find this interesting. While Jesus does use hyperbole very often in his stories, Jesus is not given to over-dramatization. He's not one to, to say the sky is falling. But this watch out is of an immense urgency. The exclamation point. Like this is not a fire drill. This is a serious warning. And, and he's not just kind of, you know, saying, hey, there's missiles on their way to Hawaii. Oh, ooh, oops, never mind. All right, sorry if that's too soon for that one. But he's saying, listen, this isn't a fire drill. I'm not joking around here. There's only one other time in, in the New Testament that I can find where Jesus says, watch out. And on that one, he says, there are people that are like wolves and they're dressed in sheep's clothing and they will devour you. He says, this one's very important. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Now, chances are the crowd's thinking, oh, he's talking about that guy. But he says, no, you be on your guard because it's not just this guy. And greed isn't just one size fits all. There's all kinds of greed. And the reality about greed is we can spot it in other people. It's very difficult to see in our own selves. And he's saying, look in the mirror because we're all susceptible. And it may look different for all of us. But be on your guard against greed. And as he says this, and people are maybe feeling a little bit uncomfortable, he drops this statement. The statement that that I think the disciples are going, oh, that's good. Let's retweet that one. That was an amazing statement. It's a statement that I think all of us in this room and those of us watching online and listening in probably would agree with intellectually, though we may not live it, we would agree with it. It's a statement that is probably the greatest FOMO statement of don't believe the big screen lies. Listen to the life that you don't want to miss out on. And he says this statement, familiar to many of us. He says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's not about how much you acquire. It's not that whole the one who dies with the most toys thing. It's not about what you drive. Your life is not about where you live, what you wear, how you vacation, your accounts, your investments, your portfolio. He says, that is not what your life is about. And then he begins to tell a story, as he often does. A hypothetical story? Yes. Maybe not. But a story that they could probably all relate to. It's a simple story. He tells a story about a rich man, and he doesn't even say how he got rich. We don't know if he was successful in business, if he worked hard. We don't know. Maybe he inherited all of his wealth. Maybe his dad gave him all this money, which would be kind of uh, similar to what was being asked at this point. But this man was rich, and in his life, he made an investment that had no guarantees. This investment could come back in his favor, he could break even, or he could lose. And what happens is, really, 
with no credit to the man who's so rich who already has more than he needs anyway, nothing necessarily that he did, it actually comes back in his favor. In fact, it's a huge windfall, but not because he's such a savvy businessman. It just worked out that way. This time, he hit it right, and it went really, really well. Now the guy has a problem. He has an idea about a solution, and then he comes to a conclusion. The problem is he was already rich, already had enough. Now he has more than enough. Actually, more than he can ever spend, more than he can use, more than he can even store and save. He says, what am I going to do? I don't want to give it this away. I don't want to lose it. So he goes on the solution side, and he has this idea, I'll just expand my kingdom, my portfolio. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. I'll have new investments. I'll put new accounts. I'll I'll, I'll diversify. I'll spread it around. I'll, I'll hold on to all of it. And with all that, he's pretty proud of himself. And he comes to this conclusion in verse 19. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. You did it. You lived it right. You're not going to miss out on anything. This is the way it was supposed to be. You did well. And what's interesting, as Jesus is telling this story, he does something in this story that I don't know if he ever does in any of the other parables. He says this, But God said to him, Now if you're familiar with Jesus' teachings, When he would tell parables, often God would be a part of that story. But he wouldn't say, this is God. You have to kind of figure it out. And it's not that difficult. It's not even as difficult as finding Waldo in a big picture. I mean, it's pretty obvious. But sometimes God is a father. And sometimes he's a vineyard owner. And sometimes he's a pearl merchant. And sometimes he's a a, a lady who has some coins. You know, and sometimes he's the owner of the field or, or whatever it might be. Rarely does he just come out and say, this guy. In this one, God plays the role of God. He plays himself. And Jesus said, this is what God said to this individual. And we think, okay, hey, good job. You're living it right. You did well. You worked hard. You're responsible. You saved. That's all fantastic. Man, am I proud of you. Nicely done. Good job. Well done. Good and faithful servant. But God said to him, you fool. You fool which I'm sure that, that his crowd gasped. That God would say, wait, 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 you fool? Are you saying that working hard is a foolish thing to do? That we shouldn't be responsible? That we shouldn't say that we shouldn't prepare for the future? That, that we shouldn't be successful? Is that, is that why he's the fool? That's not why he's the fool. In fact, notice God doesn't call him evil or wicked. It's not that he's crooked. It's not that he broke rules. It's not that he, he uh, you know, kind of bent the the, the edges to to get ahead. And it's not even about working hard. The Bible says a lot about being diligent and working hard in in a good good way. And it's not about saving and, and preparing for the future. The Bible says a lot about that and how we should and be responsible. And it's not even about being successful because the Bible even talks about prospering. The reason God calls him a fool is that this guy has put all of his hope and all of his security and all of his trust in what he's done, what he's acquired, and what he has, all of his possessions. He's put all of his value, his purpose, all his worth in what he has, and he's also become very presumptuous about his life. And God says, that's very, very foolish. 
And he goes on. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. You thought you had years. You thought you were secure. You thought you were living it right. You thought you had it all going on, but this very night, your life ends. And, question, who then will get what you have prepared for yourself? Your kids who are going to fight over it? And maybe this young man who originally asked the question says, wow, that's not a made-up story. That's my dad's story. How did he know that? Then who's going to get it? And as everyone is sitting around, and maybe there's a, a little bit of, of, of discomfort with this whole story, what Jesus is saying is that this man has great attention, but it's been given in vain. He put all of his attention, all of his passion, all of his devotion, all of his life toward the wrong thing. And now he's missing out. And maybe Jesus just lets it hang for a minute. Just the tension is in the air. Because Jesus is getting ready to really bring it home. And he has one more statement. And it's not about the guy in the story. It's for every single one of his listeners and for every single one of us. And Jesus makes this statement. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. So you can have everything. Everything the big screen says you're supposed to have. You can drive it. You can eat it. You can wear it. You can live in it. You can shampoo with it. You can do all these things with it. And not miss out on any of the big screen stuff. But miss out on all of life because you are not rich toward God. See, for Jesus, the one who loves our soul, the one who gave himself so that we could live, Jesus knew that the object of life, in all of our life, the object of life, the highest priority, is being rich toward God. And if we miss that, then we will have a life of regret. We will look back when the verdict is finally brought forward, and we will think, we missed out. And Jesus says, I do not want you to miss out on that. Hey, I, I just, full disclosure, on this last blank that you're waiting to fill in, there's a word in this blank I have never used in public. It's not a swear word. Don't worry about that. But it's just a cool word. And it's going to make me sound like I'm really smart, but I don't, I've never used this in public, but I, but I like this word. Because in this story, and with this man, and with this crowd, and so often with us, Jesus knows how easily we can be distracted and succumb to the dereliction of our priorities. Isn't that a cool word? Look it up. You can figure it out. He says, so easy will we neglect what's really important. So easy will we abandon those things that we were created for. And in so doing, we will miss out on life. Seek first the kingdom of God, he would say. Let this be your priority. And all these things will be added to you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Let that be your first and greatest commandment. That be, that be the passion that drives your life. Be rich towards God. Don't miss out on the life that is surrendered 
Don't feel like you have to control it and, 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 and call all the shots. Trust God. And don't neglect your soul. Have a life that's connected to the Father. It just breathes air into your lungs and allows you to flourish. Learn to be obedient because obedience precedes the blessing in an obedient life and live a life that is rightly prioritized. Don't miss out on that. So here's my question for you. How are you doing on becoming more and more increasingly rich toward God? See, that's our whole goal as a church for each one of us, is that we would grow more in the likeness of Christ. We'd be shaped by the words of Christ, empowered by the Spirit of Christ, transformed by the, the life of Christ, all to the glory of Christ, that we would become more and more rich toward God. So my challenge to you is this week, Maybe not wait till the end of life to wonder what is the verdict. But what about it every day? At the end of the day, to maybe look back and say, have I grown a little richer toward the things of God? Or can I hear a little voice saying, oh, you fool. Not evil, just foolish in how you live this day. And what if? What if we started every day saying, God, I want to grow a little richer towards you this day? Some time in scripture, time in prayer, time in worship, thinking of others, being generous, using our gifts, serving, advancing the kingdom, speaking up for those who have no voice, being there for those who are, are destitute. What if we were just growing a little richer toward the things of God every single day? So that's my challenge. Every day, God, I want to grow richer towards you because that's the object of life. Don't miss that one. And the second thing is starting next week, and running clear up to Easter, we're starting as a, as a church to do this combined effort to help us grow richer towards the things of God. The whole emphasis on prayer that we've been talking about, we're going to hit it head on for the next seven weeks. In the weekend service, small groups, and there will be a, a, a daily booklet that you can have in your own life. And we just, we just want every single one of you to be a part of that so that we can grow richer toward the things of God. The last thing I ever want to hear any of us hear is, you fool. What I want us to hear is, well done. You did not miss out. And Jesus invites us to that. So we're going to close with a song where Jesus just invites us. So I'd ask you to stand as we sing this together, and then I'll pray to close us.